Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast for the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm Daniel Link. Oh, hey, I'm Cameron Suey. That's my part. <laughs> I switched it up without warning there. It just... Yeah, sorry, I should have had you up about that. That's okay. I'll just jump right into the gap. And you're listening to a very special episode of Outside of a Dream, because it's the first Yuletide holiday Christmas episode, or whatever end of year festival you celebrate, the Saturn Harvest, that's one of them. Yeah, sure. I'm sure there are people who still celebrate Saturn Harvest. Yeah, they probably seem like the kind of people who would be in the other film we're going to talk about later on towards the end of this episode. Uh, But we're doing something a bit different here. Rather than focus on a work, a new horror cinema like we've had previous episodes, like post-2010 ones, the movie we're going to primarily talk about this episode is a bit of a blast from the past. In fact, it's from 1974. It's called Black Christmas, if not one of the first slasher movies, then definitely a proto-slasher, kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's it's one for the season, I will say that, uh, though it's not exactly going to bring a lot of cheer around the table if you decide to show it to the family. Yeah, as far as holiday movies go, it doesn't necessarily wear its holiday influences brightly on the sleeve. I mean, it's it, it takes place during Christmas, and, and that's sort of critical to the tone and feel of it, but... You know, I think a lot of Christmas movies or a lot of Christmas horror movies sort of embrace the comedy uh, horror blend and Black Christmas, not so much. There are definite moments of comedy in this movie. Scenes that are kind of like dedicated to situational or conversational comedy, but they do a good job of separating that from the actual action and the horrors we witness. Yeah, and it, this is actually something I had never seen before. We had talked about it in the past, but, um, you know, it's difficult for me to buckle down and watch a movie that is not less than five years old at this point, because <laughs> I feel like I'm so terrified of missing something that's on the bleeding edge of the zeitgeist. So it was actually nice to have an assignment to sit down and watch this. Mm-hmm. So it was directed by Bob Clark. Now, do you know what else Bob Clark has directed? No, I actually know almost nothing about this film. And Cam, uh, Cam, oh boy, this is great. Bob Clark directed another favorite Yuletide tale. He directed A Christmas Story. Are you okay? Well, no. I mean, I could refuse to believe that, but Wikipedia just proved you correct. (laughs) Yeah, that is uh, somewhat stunning. I think if I had gone back and watched that, knowing that fact, that would completely alter how I would uh, engage with this movie. Yeah, it. It's funny because Christmas Story was just kind of in the zeitgeist because apparently they did a live TV musical adaptation of it that wasn't so good. Yes, I have heard. No, it is very funny to think that the guy who did the charming, if like very dated story of Little Ralphie and his Red Rider BB gun also did this very unsentimental story about harassment and violence at the end of the year. So just to break things down, Black Christmas uh, is a primarily a Canadian production. Yeah, it was filmed in around the University of Toronto campus. It's set primarily at a sorority house. So most of the characters are sorority sisters, including Jess, played by Olivia Hussey, Barb, played by Margot Kidder of Superman Lois Lane fame, and Phyllis, played by Andrea Martin, whom I primarily know her from the Canadian Saturday Night Live, aka SCTV. Yeah, I was going to say. Basically, it's the end of the year for these uh, college girls who are about to go home for the holidays, but we learn fairly quickly that they've been receiving harassing phone calls from this anonymous creep, for lack of a better term, uh, who just 
screams at them, says profanities and gendered slurs over the phone. And so fairly early on, we see them taking a phone call from this guy, and they're all quietly listening around because it's become just a bit of a tradition at this point, unfortunately. And at some point, Barb, who's kind of the snarky, worldly, if this was a lesser slasher movie, she would be like the slutty one. Anyways, she grabs the phone and she starts sassing this guy back. There's some pretty good back and forth until she just straight up calls him, her words, a fucking creep. And suddenly this rancor, this unrestrained rage we've been getting from this guy up until this point, it just goes to dead silence. And he says in his only moment of calm lucidity in the entire movie, I'm going to kill you. And he hangs up. Yeah, that entire sequence, um, I mean, there's there's a lot. I had to sort of stop when I was watching this at the beginning and go back and check when it was made mm-hmm. um, because there's some sort of surprising things in it. I mean, it, this is before Halloween, but it opens almost identically to Halloween with a point of view shot of the killer. Yes. Um, there are sort of, there are a lot of things that felt way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that the way they did the phone call really struck me because it's, you get the sense that it is this sort of tradition that they all sit around and listen to this obscene phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's possible that this one is getting worse. And so you have this uh, really strangely shot sequence that's just scanning across all these uh, horrified faces of these young women while you have this just really grotesque monologue going on through that tinny speaker on the telephone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really, it sort of sours from feeling like, oh, here's a fun thing we all do whenever this guy calls to everybody's starting to feel really, truly uncomfortable. Um, and it's, it is a really unsettling sequence just having the close-up of all those faces. Yeah, because it's not just focusing on the awful stuff he's saying. It's showing the fact that this is impacting them emotionally, psychologically. Yeah. And just a little bit before that, we see somebody, through their perspective, climbing up into the sorority house, up the trellis into the attic. Uh, since you mentioned the POV shots that are very similar to what John Carpenter would do with Michael Myers in Halloween. Here I find the POV shots way more effective because this is just getting technical for a second, but Carpenter was shooting the, all of his on a steady cam, so it's very smooth and gliding. And it's kind of emphasizing the borderline supernatural nature of Michael Myers. But with the killer here, who for lack of a better moniker is goes by Billy, you know, we see the camera bob and weave, which each one of his steps in these POV sequences, we get a very uncomfortable kind of intimacy with him. Yeah, it makes him feel almost drunk or disoriented. There's something very visceral about his point of view. Mm-hmm. And so the folks are just starting to head home for the holidays, including one of the younger sorority sisters, Claire. But when she goes to check on a noise in her bedroom closet, something jumps out at her and strangles her to death with a dry cleaning bag. And amid all the hubbub of people partying downstairs, the killer brings her body up to the attic and leaves it there, asphyxiated, bag wrapped around her head. And like this image that we return to throughout the movie, because as the women in the sorority house are led to believe that like, oh, one of us has gone missing. Oh, something bad may have happened. We have to be on the lookout for people, strangers in around the campus. They don't realize that, well, as a phrase that's utterly stated later on in this movie, the calls are coming from the house. 
Yeah, I mean that's this is a very sort of classic urban legend, the mm. you know the babysitter and the phone call upstairs. And I didn't realize that this movie was going to uh, was going to be that story until about halfway through. I also think that the fact that they jump so quickly to you knowing that he's in the house and specifically mm. knowing where he is mm-hmm. is pretty impressive. I feel like a lesser movie would have teased that out and made that be the sort of third act reveal that he's in the house all along. But by literally starting our first few images with the killer sort of finding his nook, and the house is sort of spatially laid out very well, so mm-hmm. you can sort of understand where he is yeah. at all times. I think it's it's it starts from such a a far forward place mm-hmm. where other movies might build up to that, and I think it gets an incredible amount of tension out of the, you know, the, we know that the environment is is not safe where the characters and the characters feel safe. Mm-hmm. Like it's relying heavily on dramatic irony as well. This was the movie that originated the whole the calls are coming from inside the house thing. Like when a stranger calls came out with Carol Kane came out after this. So yeah. what has become very much a cliche in modern horror, like this is the origin of the cliche. This is uh, the urtext where it all began. And so the girls noticing Claire's disappearance, they go to the police. Though in an interesting touch, the police, or at least the terrible idiot desk sergeant doesn't take their concerns seriously at first, ignoring the sorority girls as well as even the father of the missing girl, Claire, and actually takes Claire's boyfriend to, you know, smack some sense into him and get the attention of uh, the desk sergeant's superior, uh, a Lieutenant Fuller, who's played by John Saxon in the first of at least two roles where he played like a reasonable authority figure in a slasher movie. Cause he's also Nancy's, <laughs> yeah, he's Nancy's cop dad in a nightmare on Elm street. Yeah. So yeah, we also learned that Fuller is being investigating this, the disappearance of a younger, like high school age girl in the area. So very quick, we were putting together that Claire was possibly not Billy's first victim, that this guy is prowling around the area. And as the police start to take it more seriously, they start a search uh, through the neighborhood for this missing girl, as well as Claire. Thankfully, they're smart enough to keep this off screen, but they do find the body of the little girl in this still very horrifying sequence where like, the mother comes across her and she starts screaming. But instead of hearing her scream, it just cuts in the sound of a ringing telephone at just as it smashes to a next scene, which I thought was a nice yeah. touch. There's a lot of playful audio stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also what's really interesting is that when they start adding in the details about the missing high school girl and all the other stuff, it doesn't feel like everything adds up right away. Mm-hmm. It feels more like there's all sorts of unsettling things happening and the characters, much less the viewer, don't really know how it all fits together yet. Mm-hmm. You're not. There's never a complete sort of package to what's going on. Exactly. And we're introduced to one possible piece in the form of Jess's boyfriend, Peter, uh, who's a conservatory pianist who also goes to the school. And he doesn't react very well to the news that, one, he's gotten her pregnant, and two, she doesn't want to have the baby and wants to have an abortion. And Peter, who's played here by Kier Dulay, uh, he just hits nearly every button in the whole elevator of creepy, domineering boyfriend traits. Yeah, and without overplaying any of them, it's all very grounded. And and once you know, once we start getting hints mm-hmm. that that this character may be our our antagonist, the movie doesn't really hold back from continuing to drop that clue. Mm-hmm. We keep getting shots of him, you know, lurking outside the house. 
Um, it's, and it seems like the movie tips its hand very quickly as to mm. who the identity of the killer is. Yeah, he goes pretty heavy. Like after botching his recital, he straight up destroys the grand piano with his with the music stand in a act of Kylo Ren esque rage. Right. And I mentioned here he's played by Kier Dulay, uh, who's only had one other significant role as David Bowman in 2001 A Space Odyssey. He's the famous, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that, of that Hal quote. And in that movie. Yeah, playing a very different character. <laughs> yeah, in that movie, he's almost robotic in his conservation of emotion. Here he is every ounce like the moody, unstable, girl, you need to get away from him, boyfriend. So we have the two parallel storylines of Jess dealing with Peter, as well as the investigation into the missing and now in one case, dead girls. They set up kind of a perimeter around the house and they decide to tap the phone lines and work with the local uh, telephone company to see where those calls are coming from. And back then, they really did have to rely on a mechanical system that required people to stay on the lines with these people in order to track the calls. So every time Billy does call, there's this bit of tension where you're hearing all this awful stuff coming out of his mouth, uh, but like the women can't put down the phone because they need to keep him on in order to track him. Right. And it's this very sort of like mechanical forensic thing that they're doing at the at the phone line where someone actually has to run out past all these mechanical devices. Mm -hmm. um, and they milk this sequence for so much tension. I mean, it happens twice when they're trying to ca capture the phone call. Yeah. Despite the fact that the viewer already knows exactly where the phone call is coming from, they still manage to make this sort of um, very forensic technical bit uh, feel very, very tense because you know what the answer is. Um, and it's just a matter of how, if they can find it in time. Yes, exactly. You're kind of hoping and praying like, oh, just keep them on 30 seconds longer and you can get everybody out of the house in time. But unfortunately they don't. And little bit by little bit, he starts picking off the other residents of the house, including the dryly funny Mrs. Mack, who's the house mother and implied to be some former vaudeville star and nowadays a bit of a lush who who secrets brandy and sherry inside of hollowed out books yeah i mean they, they play that gag probably three times of yeah. where she's hiding booze around the house um and it's tonally very strange because the rest of the movie is so dry and tense mm -hmm. um her scenes almost feel there's a very sort of you know where where the movie feels ahead of its time yeah um it's pretty impressive but then it feels very sort of classically 60s and 70s where you have these very sudden shifts in tone between sequences to this is the funny character yeah. now like especially when uh claire's dad is looking around in her room and she's very desperately trying to hide the fact she's got this nude hippie poster in one against one corner yeah of two naked people having sex like yeah. in the shape of a peace sign <laughs> you can definitely see the dna of a christmas story there and i think that's one yes yeah. the sort of farce tone to it it's very strange to have and this this really struck me and i don't know that you would get this choice today to have the father of a girl that we know to be dead mm -hmm. we, she's dead before we meet the father it's very strange to have potentially a future grieving father as a comic relief character yeah <laughs> like it's a very strange choice to make him this sort of um stuck up sort of oaf who is you know in this like mild comedy of manners with other characters mm -hmm. when we know that the end is that he's gonna find out his daughter is dead yeah like upon like rewatching it recently there is a ton of dedicated funny moments in this movie and that is one thing that could possibly spoil it for people like they've 
if you feel they don't delineate between the scary stuff and the more lighthearted stuff enough. I think I'm the, and I think that's possible. I am perhaps the world's uh, most skeptical person of blending comedy and horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at its root, it 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 very it very frequently falls flat for me because I think a lot of times horror is about building up tension. Yes. Whereas comedy is about releasing it. Mm-hmm. So I think. Uh, you know, horror releases tension and comedy builds it up as well. But I think the releasing of tension comedically can spoil the tension that's built up Mm -hmm. in the horror. So it requires a really sort of deft touch for me to um, really like it. And I I didn't have a problem with it here. I thought having it so sharply delineated between characters and scenes allowed those scary scenes to really build up and be scary. Yeah, like there's this kind of played out gag where... Barb, uh, just screwing around with the dumb desk sergeant, tells him the name of their phone number's new exchange is Fellatio, which, if you're an adult, you know what that means. Uh, And it ends up on official police paperwork, which brings no end of joy and um, bemusement to Fuller and the other detective. Right, who have to, you know, at the expense of the naive young detective, figure out where he went wrong. Oh, God. Margot Kidder in this movie is just channeling my Aunt Marine. I need to show her this movie. <laughs> like, her first line in the movie is like, who left the goddamn front door open? And it's her exact pitch and timbre of her voice. I need to show her that. <laughs> so, Billy picks off Mrs. Mack. There is a kind of like a fake-out scene where he does go into... Barb's room after she passes out, but then it's implied that he's she saw him and had a panic attack and a bit of an asthma attack as well. So Jess goes to comfort her, but then Jess is distracted and drawn downstairs by these kid carolers who've come by to sing. And then there's a very well played out sequence where as the carolers sing uh, Oh Come All Ye Faithful, it cuts between that and Billy going back into Barb's room, uh, grabbing a glass ornament off her shelf and just stabbing her in a scene that doesn't show a ton of blood, but still manages to be quite visceral. And like the way it just cuts back and forth between the two. I confess I had this feeling of, ah, this is art. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, like, like I said, ahead of its time, sort of clever interplay, especially with the sound. I think the way they keep returning to the image of the... Um, Claire with her face wrapped in plastic mm-hmm. is something that feels like a little savvy and a little bit, uh, a little mature for a slasher film of this, of this era. They really play off that image really well. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Billy uh, picks off Phil, like Phyllis in a scene that is very sudden and doesn't show a lot, but I'm kind of reminded of the death slash disappearance of Nulls towards the end of the thing where he just, he's just gone. Like there's, yeah. There's no played out death scene or anything like that. It's just a door slams and that's the last thing we see of Phyllis alive. Now, during one of these phone calls with Billy, uh, he says something akin to, it's just like having a wart removed, which sets off all of Jess's alarm bells because that's exactly what Peter said to her in reference to her wanting to get an abortion. So her and Fuller immediately start to suspect, oh God, Peter seems unstable enough and domineering enough that he might just lose it. So we need to keep an eye on him. That's when Jess is notified that the calls are coming from inside the house. She doesn't want to leave Phyllis and Barb behind, but she goes upstairs and she breaks through like the barred over door where Barb's room is and just finds their corpses there. And I think if 
a weaker director or like a not as experienced director would have had her do the typical scream as the final girl finds her friend's bodies, but says this moment of quiet, reserved horror as she's very slowly backing out of the room, like, okay, I need to put as much distance between me and this house as possible. Yeah. And at, at that point, they, they sort of lock into the idea that it's Peter and we all know that it's Peter mm-hmm. at this point, which gives her sort of um, final flight from him have this this resonance of it's, you know, it's her boyfriend and she knows not to trust him. And like as she's backing out of the room, she looks up at the gap between the door and the jam and she sees the eye of the killer just staring out at her. And it's just this moment we realize how close he is. If she had just moved a step further, like she would be dead. And resulting in this very fast and frantic chase sequence where you don't see a lot of anybody. Camera's mostly on Jess as she rushes to the basement and you don't see anything of Billy except his hand as he grabs her hair in this one kind of heart-stopping moment. But she gets down to the basement, she bars herself in, Billy launches himself against the door for a bit and then kind of backs off. And then who's that appearing at the window, Cam? Well, it's Peter and it's they've got his silhouette the one time that we see Billy's silhouette, it's nearly identical to Peter's. Mm-hmm. So they seem to be matching his silhouette. And you see just his eye at first in the same way you see um, the eye in the previous sequence before the his whole face lights up. And so it's, you know, they've really just played their hand that Peter is the killer. And so I don't, they don't even show the, the, um, the, the conflict between uh, Jess and Peter, right? You have the police showing up, uh, and she is somewhat bloodied, but is holding Peter's corpse, mm-hmm. um, implying that she is that she's been able to fight him off and kill him. Yeah, and so they take her upstairs. She's passed out from shock, and one by one they leave the room. Uh, Lieutenant Fuller to speak to the press, uh, the doctor and Claire's boyfriend to take uh, Claire's dad because he's just passed out from shock, and then Sergeant Nash, the dumb desk sergeant being himself just kind of wanders off and then the camera pans away from the house and we hear the phone ring again and the phone rings over the entirety of the credits we don't see anything else except the exterior of the house but you're able to kind of piece together what has happened yeah you you actually have the the static camera shots at the end start to move similar in the same way as the pov shots it's never spelled out directly but it sort of feels it sort of feels like it's a cheat. It feels like the movie itself becomes the POV of the killer. <laughs> like the camera just breaks away and becomes his vision. Oh, I hadn't seen that. And then that. you see, yeah, it, it feels like they're going to go into a POV shot. It's, um, and it's, it's really unsettling because they're not really saying one way or the other uh, until you hear uh, the killer whisper, Agnes, it's me, Billy, again. And so it's obviously not Peter this time. Yeah. And they still haven't searched the house, so the corpses are still waiting for them upstairs in the attic. Yes. They've just assumed that Peter was the villain all along. Yeah. So, like, like on its face, this is kind of a fairly straightforward combination proto-slasher film and maybe, like, a thriller in the form of Psycho or Don't Lick Now. Like, it has that DNA in it. But there are elements of this movie that, as you said, make it feel really ahead of its time. Like, the POV stuff, uh, as well as, like, the humor that would appear in kind of later Christmas horror movies. But, like, the stuff that was very apparent to me upon first watching it and just I keep coming back to now is how this movie is very like a lot about misogyny 
and sexualized violence and yeah. the way that men and authority figures like fail to treat that seriously enough or like come to people's help or aid or support them or deliberately ignore it or feel entitled to certain things um and it's pretty on i mean it's not subtle about that being the overriding theme between all the male characters yeah uh like especially in the form of like peter who turns out to not be the killer but you really can't blame jess for thinking he is because yeah, he ticks off all the boxes in the checklist for, like, shitty, domineering, unstable boyfriend. Yeah, whether or not he's the killer, he is a threat to her, absolutely, in the moment. Oh, he even makes, like, a vague threat to her at one point. He, he says something like, if you get that abortion, like, you'll be sorry. And in terms of, like, the female characters, they do a good job of, like, building them up as sympathetic people who have their quibbles of each other but do like each other. And are greatly saddened by the disappearance or loss of one of them to the killer. And like kind of forward in the way that you have female characters in the slasher movie who are having sex, but aren't being penalized for it. Like the final girl of this movie, Jess, is not this innocent virgin who's never laid her hands on a dude. She has been in a sexual relationship. She's pregnant and wants to have control of what she does with her body. And so like, I don't, I'm not saying that Bob Clark set out to make this feminist track because this is also the guy who did Porky's, which famous features the most <laughs> famous peeping Tom scene in any movie ever. Uh, it's one of those things like looking back over the years uh, through stuff like Gamergate and high profile harassment in the media. It's kind of hard to ignore these threads, however unintentional or unplanned for they may have been. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, um, the, the, explicit anti-feminist rules of slasher films that would sort of come out later are nowhere near this, even in a, you know, a, a, a prenatal form. Like there's no hint of those sort of moralistic rules mm -hmm. uh, in this. There's no moral judgments of the characters. So that's one way that I think it's very different from the slasher films that would follow it. And for as many similarities as there are to Halloween, I actually find Billy to be a more effective slasher than Michael Myers, personally, because I, think, I find that Michael Myers, even though they're going for this idea of this completely inexplicable, remorseless, motiveless killer, they end up over-explaining him a ton, at least in that original movie, because it's just Donald Pleasance going on and on about, oh, his, his eyes are empty. Donald loves to talk. <laughs> yes. John, I I just need to give need you to give me some whiskey and some time to monologue. That's all I ask yeah. of this B movie. But there's something very intimidating about Billy's complete near complete lack of lucidity and his motives and backstory. You do have to kind of piece together. Like they never show that hand. But you just get the impression of this person who's barely together as a human being and whose psyche has been entirely replaced with hate. Yeah. I mean, I think whereas Michael Myers is this sort of frightening, monstrous figure because he's so monolithic, uh, the Billy character, especially because we don't ever see him, we just hear, you know, those things that he says and see these brief shadows. He feels a lot more authentically like a human monster. Yeah. Like you sort of understand how there's a person in there, whereas Michael Myers starts to tend towards um, supernatural monster almost. Mm -hmm. So... That is Black Christmas. It's from 1974, directed by Bob Clark. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad we, I watched it finally. Yeah, I, I'm, that was a, a piece of my horror education that was missing. I'm glad you were able to see it, too. Ever since I first saw it in 2014, I make a point of watching it every 
Christmas time following. Uh, I actually have a really nice edition of it by Scream Factory that is still available to sale, just saying. And while it may not be a supernatural flick, uh, the one we're going to talk about right now, it definitely is. So this is a Finnish film from 2010 that I had heard about several years ago, but never watched until your recommendation uh, just last week. So this is Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. Uh, again, it came out in 2010. It was directed by Jalmari Helander and co-written by him and his brother. Based off of two shorts the two of them had done. This is a weird movie, but weird in a way I, yeah. I really dug. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I feel like trying to explain the plot is is pointless because I mean, it's a very straightforward movie. It's... um. It's a it's a monster in the woods movie, right? Yes. Yeah. These these families on the sort of edge of town where there's a large mining operation, you know, start to notice these things happening at the edge of their property. It's sort of a, a very sort of classic uh, horror film structure. It's only about halfway through when you realize that the monster that they've been tracking is Santa Claus, <laughs> but sort of like this horrifically feral, dirty you know, aged Santa Claus. Yeah, they're kind of digging into the older Scandinavian folklore around Santa Claus. Uh, I think in that part of the world, he was known as like Sinterklaas or something like that. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a different tone to um, the Eastern or the European version of Santa Claus than the American and Canadian one. There is a, a hint of menace and of ancientness about the way they present him. Then there's also like a pretty good twist about two thirds of the way through this movie about the nature of Santa Claus and our perception of what we've been thinking of Santa Claus up until that point. It was a neat little twist there at the end, uh, delving into something very old and ancient that that cosmic horror part of me really digs. I will say, though, uh, if you're watching this movie, you better get used to the image of old man, fully naked just everything because you're gonna see a lot of that (laughs) i feel like maybe i probably should have warned you especially in that climactic (laughs) scene where there are literally hundreds of um santa nude uh (laughs) and elderly santa claus um traipsing across the frozen tundra in the dark um but you can still see plenty I'm actually happy you didn't warn me about that uh, because that was a treat. That was a surprise. I was not <laughs> expecting to see in any movie, let alone this weird, darkly fantastical Christmas horror movie. So do check out Rare Exports. Uh, that's currently on Shutter, And Black Christmas, uh, you can rent that on YouTube. It's at least available on the Canadian version of Shudder. Uh, that's probably... It is on the American version of Shudder as well. That's oh, how I watched it. That's good to hear, too. And... Yeah, those are Christmas recommendations, one an oldie, one fairly new, both innovative in their own ways. And I'm just, I can't stop thinking about Rare Exports now. What a weird, funny, oddly charming little movie with a surprisingly low death count. Yeah, I mean, it is, there is a sort of a sweetness and a gentleness to it because it's all coming from a kid's point of view, Mm -hmm. but also old man genitals. (laughs) Just a lot. I'm just imagining the casting process of that. Like, okay, so... You are aware this is going to going up in all of Finland, right? And just a bunch of old Finnish men just nodding and like, I must do this for our country's film industry. Yes, it's for the art, gentlemen. <laughs> so, yeah, that's our two movies for this week. 
I hope all of you listening have a very happy holidays, whatever you celebrate, secular, religious or not. Hope you have some nice eggnog, get some snow wherever there is some snow, get some sun if you hate the snow. I pity you people, but I understand. Uh, And yeah, thank you all for listening once again, and we'll see you again in the new year. And so, so outside of a dream, this is Daniel. And this is Cameron. (laughs) And remember, if it ever gets too scary, you got the power to hit pause. Hope you have a nice day.